Thank you. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be back. Uh, as many of you probably know, my family and I, my parents and my sister, and Colin, my husband, we went to Disneyland. This has been like a lifelong family dream that was fulfilled, and it was magical and wonderful. And I wish I was still wearing my ears because it was... I wore them every day and it was wonderful. So we just got back from Disneyland. It was a really, really great trip. And now we're on the third week of Advent. And so Advent is this time of preparing, of getting ready. And on the first Sunday of Advent, a few weeks ago, I asked the kids, like, okay, do we know what Advent is? And they're all like, yeah, it's the countdown to Christmas. And you could probably get that answer from any kid, whether they go to church or not because we have advent calendars, right? So it's this countdown to Christmas and they were all sharing the different advent calendars that they got and they were so excited to be opening them for the next 24 days and they're like, what calendar do you have? And I didn't have one, but I said if I did, I wish that I had this David's Tea advent calendar, which I think would be amazing. Just in case anyone was wondering, just putting it out there, just a public statement. I think it's really, really cool. And it may seem kind of like, childish or oversimplified or like losing the meaning of Christmas by having these advent calendars. But if you think about it, children, whether they go to church or not, know at the very least that advent has something to do with leading up to Christmas, something to do with getting ready for Christmas. So what Christmas means might be different from house to house, but it's a pretty good start. I think it's pretty cool that people even know the word advent. That's like them knowing Passover or Pentecost and having a hot clue what that word even means, right? Like that's, actually, that's what Advent is and people know this word. So we know in the church that it's a time of preparing for celebrating what happened 2,000 years ago and the second coming of Jesus, which we're waiting for. But even with all of that, Advent is a time to just get pumped for Christmas, get pumped for Christmas. So we're going to do it. We're going to get pumped for Christmas. We're going to anticipate that day in 11 more sleeps. I think I got that right. Is that right? Does anyone know? I guess the junior highs are gone. They probably wouldn't the crowd to know, right? I think it's in 11 more sleeps. And we're going to get pumped by looking at a nice long list of dead people. Okay? That's what we're going to do. Okay? But it's not just any list. It's a list of people who are in Jesus' family line, and we're going to continue our series, Womb and Board, the scandalous stories of women who delivered the deliverer. So, so far, Pastor Matt has brought us through these stories of two women in the history of Scripture. He took us through Tamar and through Ruth, who both carried children who would go on to carry on the family line of Jesus Christ. Matt has explained to us that genealogies, these amazing lists that are so riveting, they're important because they spoke of someone's identity. The same way that your career or your education speaks to your identity that we would use today to decide how much maybe you're worth, that was genealogies. It was an important part of people's identity. You think you're worth something? Prove it. Like, who's your daddy? Prove it. That's what the genealogies were. So this genealogy tells a story. I asked Colin this morning if that was an inappropriate saying or not, but we decided it was okay. I couldn't decide. Anyways. So genealogies, this genealogy that we're going to look at today tells us a story that sets a backdrop for the Christmas story. And in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew, we see people who are included that aren't of credible or important standing. We see foreigners, we see women, they're mothers of people who carried on this family line, and that's very unusual. Usually these types of people aren't included if you're trying to prove who you are through a genealogy. 
And as we've been going through these different pregnancy stories, I can't help but read these stories in a new light than I ever have before, because as many of you have heard, I now have an approximately 17-week glimpse into what it's like to carry a child inside of you. And so for us, it's exciting and it's anticipated and, and we planned for this. And for Tamar, she was rejected by the men who were supposed to allow her to carry the family line through which God was going to bring the deliverer. And eventually she ended up as a prostitute whose pregnancy actually comes from her late husband's father messed up. For Ruth, she's this foreign Moabite woman in the Israelite land with her mother-in-law, and she's the enemy of the Israelites. She has to endure loss of her husband, loss of her brother-in-law, all this loss. She's in danger before Boaz. She asks to be her family redeemer, and then she's able to carry on the line to carry on Jesus' family. For Bathsheba, we're going to see today that her inclusion in this family actually started with non-consensual acts of power manipulation. For Mary, we're going to see her pregnancy, many of us know, was God-given, which is beautiful and exciting, but unexpected, and has major social repercussions as a pregnant virgin. But also, the exhaustion and the pregnancy brain, where someone asks you a question, and you know the answer, and you know you know the answer, but you cannot, for the life of you, Remember what you're supposed to say or the morning sickness, that last all day sickness that they went through and they didn't have diclectin to calm their nausea like we have today. And they didn't have this picture on their refrigerator of this precious little baby. So apparently it's a little confusing. So it's laying like this, like that. People were like, oh, it's so cute. What am I looking at? Right? So this way, <laughs> right? They didn't have, Mary didn't have, Tamar didn't have, Rahab didn't have this picture on their refrigerator. This is the second picture I've got. I'm going to get another picture in a few weeks. You already get at least three of these pictures during your pregnancy. And pregnancy is a gift, and it's beautiful, but it can be really, really hard sometimes. It's really hard for me in this loving marriage where this baby has been hoped for, for and planned and anticipated, and we know our baby so far is healthy, yet I still find myself just sobbing on our couch, wishing the nausea would go away just for, just for a little while. Just for a little while. And so my husband reminds us of the, the wonderful miracle that's causing this mental, emotional, digestive disaster inside of my body and roller coaster, and he puts that sickness into perspective with the life and the family that we've longed for, that many people long for and don't always get. So I feel guilty for not loving every second of this amazing pregnancy. But sometimes this gift is really, really hard. These women were all in really difficult situations, and they were pregnant on top of that. I like to think maybe at least Mary had like an easy pregnancy because the baby was Jesus and all. Maybe God gave her a break and she was one of those that was like, I love being pregnant. I don't know what that's like. But maybe I, I feel like maybe she got to be one of those people. Maybe God gave her a break. But Jesus was a full human flesh baby. So maybe not. It's a question I want to ask her one day. So these women were given the role of carrying human life into this world, which is an incredible, challenging, beautiful gift and not in the way that any of them would have planned to be given that gift. And God used and multiplied that gift beyond their lifetime. So that brings us to a riveting list 
in Matthew 1. And don't worry, I'm not going to read all the names through it, but we're going to be reading some of them. You can follow along in your Bibles or on your devices or on the screen, Matthew 1. The ancestors of Jesus the Messiah. This is the record of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Down to verse 6. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. And names, 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 blah, blah, blah. 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. All those listed include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. Ooh, you pumped for Christmas? Can you feel it? Yeah. Okay, there's a couple things that I want to point out from this genealogy. David's name shows up five times in this list. Jesus' name only gets put in there twice, but David is in there five times. Matthew is clearly wanting to emphasize that the Messiah came from the line of David. He's emphasizing this because the Israelites would have known that this was the promise. This was the promise made in 2 Samuel 7, that that's where the Israelite or the Messiah would come from. And he's emphasizing that over and over and over by saying, David, 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 throughout. Now, noticing this makes the rest of our story today a little bit interesting. So, Matthew 1, 6, Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. This is the generous NLT version. NLT is the one that uses more of the language that we would use today. They put uh, people or add he and she, where lots of translations would just say he. It's kind of like a more modern translation type of thing, where the NIV, for example, would put Matthew 1, 6 like this. Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, this morning I titled my sermon, Uriah's Wife, which was questioned not once, but three times when making the bulletin this week, because people in the office thought it should say Bathsheba, because that's who I'm talking about. But I actually did it on purpose. Tamar is listed as the mother of her boys. Rahab is listed as the mother of Boaz. Ruth is listed as the mother of Obed, but not Bathsheba. However, I think Matthew's actually saying something here by not saying her name, which we're going to see as we look into the story of this woman that she would still be considered significant enough to be included in the story of Jesus' genealogy. But also, why David is very important in this list, but still actually listed perhaps less than he could have been. So we're going to look at the life of Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11, and you can turn there in your Bibles. This is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. In 2 Samuel 11, closer to the front-ish, before halfway of your Bible, um, 2 Samuel 11, we're going to start with verses 1 to 4. David and Bathsheba. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege on the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of his palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to the palace. He slept with her. 
She just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Now first, a few things are being noted about David already in these first couple verses. His army was in Rabbah, but he wasn't there. He stayed behind, even though verse 1 says that kings normally went along. And it wasn't because he was too busy or had too much going on back at the palace. What was he doing? He had his midday rest, and then he was walking about his palace leisurely, looking around over his kingdom, right? He wasn't really doing a whole lot of anything. And then there's this first encounter with Bathsheba, which as I knew I was preparing this message and I was listening to Matt's sermon last week, it stood out in great contrast to the story that we heard last week about the story of Ruth. Because in the story of Ruth, Boaz sees this woman and he asks who she is and they say that that's Ruth, Naomi's daughter-in-law. And so then he calls a blessing on her. He stands out as this man of faith and asks God to honor her and calls for protection on her. And Boaz, upon seeing Ruth, God actually uses to redeem her story and to be allowing her to be the faithful woman who played a role in delivering the deliverer. David, on the other hand, whose legacy is best known as the man after God's own heart, sees this woman, asks about her, but he doesn't ask, call a blessing on her. And it actually doesn't lead to David being the one that God uses to redeem the story, but instead God uses Bathsheba to redeem his story, to redeem the story of David. So how is Bathsheba being brought into this story? What point of view is Bathsheba being looked at by David? Physically, she's being looked down upon, right? He's up in his palace, she's down below, but also symbolically she's being looked down upon because she is identified by the men in her life, by who she belongs to. Bathsheba will more often be referred to either as the woman or Uriah's wife than her own name. She is seen as an object to be owned, something you can see in a window and go get, or see in the privacy of her own balcony and have her brought to you. She's not seen as a person. Now, some people just kind of gloss over, read over the story, and they see Bathsheba and they put her in a category with all the other scandalous women, with Tamar and Rahab, who are prostitutes, for bathing so publicly, and that changes the way, the light that they see her in. Is it her fault in this situation for bathing so publicly? Like, was she asking for it? In a time where indoor plumbing didn't exist, she was likely in an enclosed garden or courtyard of some sort that could only be viewed from above. And in those days, there was no such thing as helicopters or drones with people taking videos above, so she would have thought she was safe, right? She would have thought it was private. So we need to be really careful not to use quick judgments of our understanding of what an enclosed shower would mean and what that looks like, that we don't use that to blame the victim in this story. So David looks at this woman. He asks for intel on who she is, only to find out that she's Uriah's wife. And that would have meant something to him because Uriah is one of his best soldiers. And Elam, her father, is one of his elite warriors. And that means he would have known that her grandfather is one of his chief advisors. David knew Bathsheba's family very well. So you might ask, well, couldn't have Bathsheba then said no? Especially if her family is known by the king? No. When the king sends a group of messengers to get you, 
You don't have the option to say no. We can't see from the story if Bathsheba knew why she was being summoned. Maybe she thought there was news about her husband or something like that. But she had no power, no voice, no option to say no to the king. Bathsheba is a victim in this story. And one last thing before we continue reading on. What's with that like creepy personal detail in verse 4? David sent the messengers to get her. Then she came to the palace. He slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. And she returned. Like, what? Why are you telling me this? This is weird, right? Why would that be included? You know a little bit about some uh, procreation biology. There's a window of time that a woman is typically most fertile to get pregnant. And that she had just finished those rites would have meant that she was probably in this window when David called for her. So we're going to continue our story in 2 Samuel 11 from verse 5. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Then David sent word to Joab, Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was processing. Then he told Uriah, go home and relax, a.k.a. go home and spend some time with your wife. Wink, wink. That's what he's telling him. David even sent Uriah a gift after he left the palace, but Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night in the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, What's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear I would never do such a thing. The story's progressed quite quickly, and David knows exactly what he's done. He saw her, he sent for her, he took her, he laid with her, she went home, she was pregnant, and her husband can't possibly be the father because he won't go home. David used his position to objectify this woman to fulfill his lust, and she was made a victim, and now so was Uriah. Look at verse 11 again. Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. Job and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear I would never do such a thing. Uriah is obviously a good man. He cared about his people. He cares about Yahweh, whose ark was in a tent. He cares about the men who are still out in battle. He's selfless. And when David tries to plan this elaborate, collaborate, elaborate um, cover-up to construct a timeline where Uriah could be the father of this baby, it doesn't work. So David tries again. He even tries getting him drunk. And even drunk Uriah is still faithful and won't leave his soldiers. David's men were in the middle of battle And he's just living with leisure. And yet Uriah, who's being greatly urged by the king to do the same, refused. He stayed with his men. The story is carefully recorded to point out that Uriah the Hittite, a.k.a. someone who's not an Israelite, was standing in contrast to King David, from whom the great Messiah would come. It was not... God's chosen Israelite leader, but a foreigner who held himself with honor and dignity. Uriah, the foreigner, the Hittite, shows greater adherence to the laws of Yahweh than the king of Yahweh's chosen people. 
So knowing this, this contrast and the significance of genealogies in order to prove someone's worth and identity, perhaps the more scandalous name in this list in Matthew actually isn't Bathsheba, but it's Uriah. Because Bathsheba was a woman, yeah, but she at least had a credible family background. She was at least an Israelite. Her father was honorable even. But Uriah actually has no blood or even connection to the family line of Jesus, except through the raping and impregnating of his wife by King David. That's his only connection. He's not actually blood in this line. But his name is still included on this list. So you can call it a, a patriarchal system that identifies Bathsheba, not by her own name, but by the men in her life. But I don't think Matthew's actually really adhering to that system either by including Uriah the Hittite. Uriah shouldn't be there either if Matthew's trying to prove Jesus' worth and credibility. So now what? Uriah's turning out to be this great, wonderful, faithful, Yahweh-respecting man. David might actually have to face the consequences of his actions. David has to kick his plan up a notch. David once again uses his power to victimize someone. Reading on verse 14 in 2 Samuel 11. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. Did you catch that? Who did David send this letter through? Who did David send Uriah's death sentence through? Uriah. He gave his own letter to ensure his very own death. He gave that to him. So Joab, in verse 16, continuing on, assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. When the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed, along with several other Israelite soldiers. So now that Uriah's gone, he's dealt with, Uriah could marry Uriah's poor widow, and everything would just be swept under the rug. Only it wasn't. David, in the next chapter in 2 Samuel, is called out by the prophet Nathan for his sin, and he confesses it, but this doesn't stop the consequence for what happened, which in the case of this story was actually the child's life, Bathsheba's baby, actually was ended. The child who would have been the heir to David's throne, who would have been a part of, who would have had the call of passing on the line through which Jesus would be born, died because of what David did. And after this, David lay with Bathsheba again, and they had a second child, Solomon, who would be the next king, the next name that we see listed in Jesus' genealogy. Bathsheba faced the consequences of David's sin. She has no voice. She's the victim of his sexual lust. She's looked down upon, taken advantage of, and her loved ones, her husband, her first baby, die. Her vantage point is one from below. She's vulnerable. She has little say. She has little power over what happens to her. But this is also the vantage point of Jesus, which you'd think would be this all-seeing position from above, like David, where he has his palace and he can look down on everything, the position of a great king. But that's not actually the position Jesus takes. He, too, takes the vantage point from below. He joins us in our humanity in our sin, in our victimization, in our death. He became sin who knew no sin. He became vulnerable, as vulnerable as a helpless baby. 
Jesus didn't remain on high. Jesus came. Jesus became. And that's what Christmas is about. That's what makes the list in Matthew something we're celebrating, something to get pumped over Christmas about, because it's a list of people. And some of these people are great, and some of them are ordinary, and some of them are seen to have little worth. Some of them were kind of terrible. And it's a list of humanity. And that's where Jesus is found. He took a bottom-up vantage point, the position of the victim and the vulnerable. Only Jesus isn't powerless even in this position. He comes to the position of the vulnerable. He makes himself vulnerable, knowing that it would not defeat him so that we can share in his victory. We aren't stuck with Jesus down below to be taken advantage of and manipulated and used and abused. Jesus comes alongside us so that he can bring us up. He brings us to the full healing and restoration that each of us need for all the things we have done, for all the times we have taken the position of the top down, and for all the things that have been done to us, for the times we have been looked down upon and mistreated. Because we're all prisoners. We have all been held back by our own actions, and we are all captives, held back by the actions of others that have impacted us. So I am impacted by the choices that I make. I'm impacted by my good choices, by my bad choices, my selfish choices, my sinful choices, and for those I'm in prison. And I'm also impacted by the choices that others have made, their selfish choices, their good choices. They impact me. Their sinful choices, they impact me. And for those, I'm being held captive. It's both. We make choices that have consequences, but there are also things that are outside of our control that maybe are in the control of others or maybe aren't really in the control of any one person, like a car accident. We're held captive to the reality of this broken, sinful world that we live in. And Jesus takes on that position. He takes on that position of captive and of prisoner. He takes on the weight of sin, of things he did not commit. Consequences of the sin done not only towards him throughout his life, but through all of our lives, even though he has no reason to do either. And it's not a power complex. It's not a pity party. It's a movement of love. It's an infiltration of darkness from the inside out. So the unnamed woman in Jesus' genealogy is listed for a reason. She's listed for us. Her foreign husband is listed for a reason. He's listed for us to make us feel kind of uncomfortable. Because we shouldn't be comfortable with what happened to Bathsheba or with what happened to Uriah. We should never be comfortable when someone is looked down upon, treated as an object, manipulated, abused, taken advantage of. She was in a really difficult situation. And then on top of that, that's amplified because she gets pregnant. And then on top of that, because she's pregnant, her husband is killed. And then because of that, she ends up with King David, who was the one who abused her, and then has to have another child with him. And yet God somehow redeemed that pregnancy in the way that only God can. And her legacy to this day is a woman who delivered a baby, which would one day lead to the delivery of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Her story was redeemed beyond anything she could ask 
or imagine or comprehend in her lifetime. That today we would be reading the life of God in human flesh, born of a virgin, and that her journey would be included in that story. Let's go back to Matthew 1. This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Verse 5. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. So maybe the NLT gets it right to name this important woman, to recognize her. Or maybe Uriah's wife remains unnamed. Matthew 1.6, Jesse, the father of King David, David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So that will question not only why Uriah is there, and then to discover both his story, but then also the story of his wife, to discover the story of Bathsheba. And in that discovery, we can name God's news for this world, and that name is Jesus. David's mention of five times, it doesn't happen without Bathsheba. But Bathsheba is not listed as David's wife. David's sin is actually kind of left plastered in this list by leaving Uriah in there. So that's what Bathsheba's name or lack of her name points to. It points to the hope in Jesus for redemption, for what we have done, and for what has been done to us, for making all things, all situations new. The inclusion of Uriah and Bathsheba, I believe, is a call to show us that all people, even the shalom breakers, even sinful people like David, can be made into shalom makers. All people, the powerful and the vulnerable, need the redemption power of Jesus, and all people can be redeemed. So remembering the name of Uriah and Bathsheba, let's get pumped for Christmas by being uncomfortable in the face of injustice and join Jesus in his redemption mission to name the unnamed, raise them up to a position where they can experience the redemption power of Jesus in their lives. We're going to sing a final song with the band and then I'll come back up so you can stand if you're able of power what injustice is Jesus pointing out to you is he pointing you to as you survey the world around you what is he calling you to be a part of redeeming there are hundreds of causes being put in front of your face this Christmas could you pick one could you pick maybe a couple Maybe one is financial, a cause that you feel God is drawing you to, that you can be part of redemption there. Maybe something relational in your life. Maybe there's a breakdown of relationship that maybe is heightened by this Christmas season, by a friend or a family member that maybe you've caused. Could you ask Jesus' redemption power in that? To not hold you prisoner to that, but to use your position of power to bring Jesus' redemption. 
and from the side of Uriah and of Bathsheba, the position of the vulnerable one. What injustice have you experienced that Jesus wants you to bring him into so he can redeem you and heal you? Prayer teams, you can come forward now. What would it look like to come to one of these people? To ask for prayer for something in your life. To take that first step to just talk about it. For me, this actually kind of, this has looked like, and I'm still working on becoming this, this becoming a regular part of my life, but it's looked like going to counseling to ask and to have questions that have actually allowed me to better come to someone and ask for prayer because I've been able to process it. I found once I talked about it with my counselor, it's a lot easier to talk about it with other people. And that's where I personally and a lot of people in my life have found healing for the injustices that have been done to me. And you might not think there's that many. And then you go to a counselor and it turns out there are things going on in your life. So as we count down to Christmas, Let's seek Jesus' redemption power in what we have done and what has been done to us. For the prisoner and the captive inside of us all to be set free so that we can be included in the family line of Jesus with all the other names that don't belong there too. I am who you say I am. I am a child of God. Yes, I am. Yes, you are. God, I thank you that in this Advent season this week, you turn us to joy. And it can be hard when we are prisoners and when we are captives to feel that joy. But you seek to set us free from what we've done and what's been done to us. And so we pray you would give us a step of courage today to seek that healing, to allow you to redeem us, and that you would empower us by your spirit to be your redemption power in the world. Just give us a glimpse, Jesus. Just speak to us of maybe even one thing. What can that look like today, this week, to see your redemption move as we look to celebrate the coming of Jesus? Let's get pumped for Christmas by seeing you move and redeem. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week.